Hey everybody, it's Daniel. Welcome back to another episode of Spain to Go, the best podcast in the entire multiverse for all things Spain. Today I wanted to talk about something a little bit different. This is not, strictly speaking, a Spain-related episode, but it is an interesting episode that's created some interesting conversations among some of my friends who have read it. It, of course, being the original article on my blog, expatmadrid.com. Anyway, the article is called Turning 40, Thoughts on the Virtuous Life, Self-Indulgence, and Cheap Dopamine. The dentist's drill whines. A puff of smoke floats past my eyes. After a minute, the smell of burning enamel. The dentist and the hygienist hover over me in faced masks and protective goggles, drilling out the pulp, filing down the nerves. Eventually, they have to inject the spaces inside my roots with citric acid, then alcohol, then citric acid, then alcohol. Repeat, repeat, repeat. This part takes the better part of an hour, and the dental dam is leaking. I try to detach and remain calm, but all the while my throat is filling up with spit, blood, and acid. I can't speak, so I gurgle a protest, and the hygienist sucks the fluid out with her little vacuum. Momentary relief, but it happens again and again. It's my first root canal. I've just turned 40, and let me tell you, so far it's not going well. Finally, they stop the bleeding from my roots. Next, there's the hot poker round, in which they heat up a pointy piece of metal with a blowtorch and jab me with it. When we're done, I ask the dentist, so when you said this wasn't going to hurt at all, that was quite an exaggeration, wasn't it? She shrugs. Pretty non-committal, this one. I leave the office after two and a half hours, with a strange plaster substitute for my old molar, 500 euros poorer, and feeling like I've just been physically and emotionally abused. Getting old really makes you think. Or at least it makes me think. Most guys my age are probably better at dealing with these things in the normal ways, distracting themselves with mindless entertainment, video games, hookers and blow. Maybe they go out and buy a sports car, this is not quite fair. A lot of guys my age also have kids, which probably would take their mind off of some of this. Not me, though. Leaving the dentist, I go out and pick up a book on Stoic philosophy, Cicero's On Living and Dying Well. I need a drink and a couple of hours alone to process what just happened. Judging from the new joint pains I've been feeling and the fact that my routine dental checkup just turned into a much more expensive and bloody endeavor. It would appear that this new decade of my life might be a bit different than the previous one. Anyway, on the topic of old age, here's a Cicero quote. The best armor of old age is a well-spent life preceding it, a life employed in the pursuit of useful knowledge in honorable actions and the practice of virtue. 
Marcus Tullius Cicero, 103 BC to 43 BC. Well, the practice of virtue, capital V, virtue. You see the way Cicero has written it? There's a lot of words with capital letters, but virtue is one of them. And practice of virtue? Well, that just does not sound much like anybody I know. Words like honor and virtue actually seem pretty antiquated and not exactly in step with the prevailing philosophy of the times. In centuries past, presumably, you might be complimented by your peers on your character or integrity. Being serious might be considered positive. These days, though, it seems like most people would prefer to be thought of as cute, popular, nice, or fun. Just imagine, if you will, the following conversation in which person A says, you should really go out with my friend Daniel. He's got a lot of character. Person B responds, what? You mean he's ugly? Person A, no, his character, integrity. You know, honor, nobility of spirit, all the old-school virtues. Person B. Oh my god, he's definitely ugly. I can't believe you're trying to hook me up with your ugly friends now. What did I ever do to you? And so on. Maybe there's a Christian dating app where people use the word character in their profiles unironically. And maybe there are cultures around the world where these things are still valued. The nomadic herders of Mongolia, perhaps, value character. But us modern secular Westerners, card-carrying members of the cult of romantic consumerism, would rather buy all the stuff and feel all the feels than sit around exercising self-control and developing an Aristotelian greatness of soul. Because where's the fun in that? Well, as I've mentioned before, and actually suspected for quite a while now, fun is largely an empty pursuit. At least, it's never appealed much to me. So what is this practice of virtue, exactly? In the Cicero quote I just mentioned, he says that the best way to arrive at old age is the practice of virtue as a younger person. But what does that mean, exactly? It'd be easy to gloss over the word virtue as generally being a good person. Online and offline virtue signaling seems to be mostly about that. I'm a good person because I parrot all the acceptable political views, fret about climate change or whatever, and pay sufficient lip service to tolerance. In any case, it doesn't involve actually doing much. It's barely a practice. And, of course, being a good person can mean very different things to different groups of people. Personally, I try not to base my life on ambiguous buzzwords, so good person in itself doesn't do much for me. And neither does practice of virtue without a lot of clarification. Luckily, Cicero elsewhere defines what he means by virtue. In fact, he lists four virtues, which I'll paraphrase here. 
The original, of course, is in Latin, so forgive me if I don't pick up all the nuances. Cicero's four virtues, in any case, are wisdom, knowing what is good versus evil and being able to choose good, justice, contributing to the common good and not harming others, courage, a noble and unconquerable spirit, and temperance, a.k.a. moderation, or, if you prefer, discipline. That also sounds quaintly old-timey, but at least it's specific. The problem is that nothing in my upbringing or culture seems to value these things. The word virtue itself sounds, at best, like you're about to get some long scolding about abstinence from someone's puritanical aunt. And the idea of controlling your passions and resisting temptation clashes with literally everything about life in a consumer society. Bro, relax, I hear you suggest. Stop striving for excellence of character and have a few cupcakes. Indulge yourself. Such seems to be the reigning philosophy, because honestly, what kind of square sits around conquering his passions when there's so much fun to be had? So, what about those four virtues? Well, it's interesting to note that if you dig in, the words wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance have specific meanings that aren't exactly what you might be expecting. Wisdom, for example, is more than just knowing information. It's knowing how to act. It's knowing the difference between good and evil. You can learn knowledge from a wise man, but you can't learn his wisdom. That comes from experience. Knowing what's in your control, what's not, and how to act on the things you can impact, that is wisdom. Justice in ancient Greece and Rome meant something different than it does today. Something along the lines of making sure everyone gets their due. Needless to say, in a violent society run by aristocrats, with slavery, gladiatorial spectacles, and feeding Christians to lions, it didn't mean equality, social justice, or even fairness in the sense we now think of it. It also includes an admonition to help the public good and do no harm, but those things were also understood rather differently 2,000 years ago. Courage seems a bit more self-explanatory, but then again, what does a noble and unconquerable spirit mean if your life consists of working in an office, shopping in a mall, and sleeping in a climate-controlled house? Probably not much. The Brene Browns of the world would suggest that it has to do with honestly expressing your feelings, because these days we're hardly, most of us, going off on long journeys to slay a dragon or wage war against Gaul. For a lot of people, I suppose courage just amounts to things like asking your boss for a raise, or going up to talk to that girl you like. Finally, temperance, a.k.a. discipline or moderation, still seems fairly popular, at least among some. If you take it to include things like going to the gym, giving up drugs, and putting down the donuts, a lot of people would agree. 
but moderation is harder today than it's ever been. The Greeks and Romans lived in a world without a lot of cheap dopamine. They didn't have Instagram, they didn't have Call of Duty or Frappuccinos. They certainly didn't have billion-dollar companies lobbying the government for the right to call ultra-processed, sugary snacks part of a balanced diet. Apart from wine and prostitutes, the Greeks and Romans probably had to earn most of their fun the hard way. Still, the four virtues seem worth keeping in mind, even though the social situation has changed. Moderation will help you live a long life, courage will help you get what you want, and wisdom and justice will ensure that you have a good reputation. All good things. But will they make you happy? Well, the Stoics had a slightly different idea about happiness as well. The cultural conversation about happiness has changed quite a bit in the last couple of millennia. Whereas these days we're told that happiness comes from external sources, good things happen to you, therefore you feel happy, the Stoics had things the other way around. Seneca thought that the happy life was achieved not through bodily enjoyment, but once again through the use of reason and the practice of virtue. And Aristotle said just about the same thing, that eudaimonia was the product of virtuous activity in accordance with reason. Eudaimonia is the word they were using back then, and the translators often just leave it in the original Greek because it's pretty clear that they're not talking about happiness in the same way that we do today. Finally, consider Seneca's letter on festivals and fasting, in which he suggests practicing poverty. Set aside a certain number of days, during which you will be content with the scantest and cheapest fare, with coarse and rough dress, saying to yourself all the while, Is this the condition that I feared? That is, Seneca the Younger who lived from 4 BC to 65 AD. So, practicing poverty. Well, this practice, Seneca assumes, will train the spirit to face future situations of difficulty and deprivation, which will make you better at dealing with stress in your normal day-to-day. Many religious traditions suggest something similar. Everyone from Buddhists to Mormons to Jewish people and Muslims fast from time to time as part of their spiritual practice. Incidentally, I've been fasting myself recently, and let me tell you, it does help create some self-discipline. It turns out that hunger is all mental. My recommendation? Get the Zero app for Android or iPhone. It's a simple fasting timer, and it's great. Leave me a comment with your results. In any case, the Stoics weren't waiting around for good things to happen before they allowed themselves to be happy. They were finding happiness within themselves through the practice of virtue, often despite what was going on in their tumultuous times. All this sounds a bit different than the goals of self-help or personal development promoted by popular gurus these days. Rather than cultivating character, 
Most modern self-help focuses on more worldly aims. Set better goals, manage your time, earn more money, develop better abs, be productive. Pursuits which, it is assumed, will make you happy. Otherwise, they might suggest that you could be happy without any of that. Don't worry, just meditate. But most gurus fall far short of offering a moral prescription or demanding that anyone practice specific virtues. A glance at the popular self-help books on Amazon makes it clear that most people want to learn about self-love, self-care, how to be a badass, let shit go, and not give a fuck. Also, this is not really my scene, but from what I've heard, even a lot of modern American Christianity has devolved into thinly disguised self-help, which focuses on be a nice person and don't worry, be happy type messages rather than giving any sort of guidance about what to do in a difficult moral situation. All of which may be useful to some, but it's certainly not Aristotelian. However, everyone from the Stoics to Jesus and the Buddha would at least partially agree that not giving a fuck is an important life strategy. They just wouldn't express it that way. Maybe the author Mark Manson, author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, in case you're not informed about this guy, maybe Mark Manson could rewrite the New Testament to make it appeal to younger people. Quote, And Jesus spoke, Consider the fucking lilies of the field, how those fuckers grow. They work not their asses off, nor do they join some fucking knitting circle. But I'll be goddamned if those motherfuckers don't look fly as shit. Coming soon to every airport bookstore on the planet. That is about the tone of Mark Manson's writing. It's basically every other self-help book, but with much more profanity. Enough profanity that I actually found myself to be kind of annoyed, and I don't generally have a big problem with profanity. Anyway, so perhaps not giving a fuck is a good strategy, and perhaps you could rephrase it in any number of ways. But can you be fulfilled by just achieving goals, or by not giving a fuck about goals at all? Well, here's my view. I've spent some time in my life meditating, although not much recently, and plenty of energy achieving worldly goals, and I agree that both are good things. But achievement can easily lead one to the hedonic treadmill, where you need bigger goals every six months to avoid the feeling of emptiness. And meditating to transcend your desires takes years of practice, and you're always in danger of using spirituality as an excuse to become some useless bohemian who just gets high all the time and doesn't care about anything. In other words, I don't think achievement and or not giving a fuck is all a person needs in the long term, which is why I'm writing this and spending the first weeks of my 40s thinking about capital V virtue. I'd like to end today with a little discussion of humility, self-esteem, and countercultures. 
Looking back through old Kindle books that I read a few years ago, I found one called The Road to Character by David Brooks. David Brooks, New York Times columnist, among other things, writes, The social system we are a part of pushes us to live out one sort of insufficient external life. But we have time to rectify it. The question is how. The answer must be to stand against, at least in part, the prevailing winds of culture. The answer must be to join a counterculture. Elsewhere in the book, he talks about people from previous centuries who accomplished big things despite being generally self-effacing and humble. People who certainly practiced the four Stoic virtues and didn't want to make it all about me. People who served something larger than themselves and who intentionally chose work that couldn't be completed in a single lifetime. All this he describes in contrast to the philosophy of the age of the selfie, in which everyone considers themselves special, and building a healthy self-esteem out of nothing at all seems like a worthy goal. Personally, I'm overjoyed every time I read something about how mainstream psychology is now deciding that self-esteem is bullshit. I've always thought that anyone who's capable of sitting around loving themselves for no reason whatsoever, was some sort of dangerous and delusional maniac. And the author of the above-linked article, above-linked only if you go to expatmadrid.com to read this, but the article is, I believe, on the New York Times. You could Google it. It's called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. And the author, I have no idea, it's behind a paywall at this point. I apologize. The Trouble with Self-Esteem from the New York Times. The author is a real psychologist who has decided, just as I have, that self-discipline is way better than self-esteem. It's a good article if you are a subscriber to the New York Times and and, or have not uh, used up your monthly free articles. Anyway, like I said, all of this is about my turning 40. So... I've spent some time just here contemplating the second half of my life. I've asked around, as I tend to do. Friends in their 40s have assured me that it's the best decade. Mostly, they say, because you can do whatever you want. Doing whatever I want, however, is how I spent most of my 30s, and it largely seems to be a dead end. What I mean is, it's fine for a younger person than myself, and for a limited number of years. But at some point, I started to think I'd had enough self-indulgence for one lifetime. In fact, for a while, it's been pretty clear that most people, myself included, need more struggle rather than less. We need to do some hard things, right some wrongs, and practice courage, even, especially, when it's uncomfortable to do so. And with the right mix of courage, justice, and temperance, we might eventually achieve the wisdom of old age. One friend said something that stuck with me more. It's a privilege to reach this age at all. And it's true. We all know people who haven't made it to 40. 
I know people who didn't even make it to 20. People in my family tend to live a long time, but of course, nothing is guaranteed. Either way, I'm most likely about to enter the second half of my life, and I'm planning to make it a good one. Just one PS today. Well, maybe two PSs. First, if you have reached this point and been thinking the whole time that this is a very masculine point of view, you're right, it is a very masculine point of view. In fact, the two friends who told me about how their 40s were shaping up to be the best decade yet were women, and they said things like, well, my kids are older now, and so I have time to go to the gym. And they talk about how their 40s are great because they're able to indulge themselves in ways that they couldn't previously. This is very different than my situation. My situation is that I've spent a lot of time doing basically whatever I felt like doing since my online business got to a point several years ago where I didn't need to work my ass off every day. So I've had plenty of time for self-indulgence. Anyway, maybe there's also some sort of biological reason why women tend to think differently about aging than men. I don't really know, though. I'm not a biologist. My other PS today is that I recently got married out in India. That article is on the blog, too. I don't know if I'll record it for the podcast, but there's at least part one of my Indian wedding adventure. I married an Indian woman in India. It was a beautiful experience. I met a lot of Indian people. I've got a whole extended Indian family now. So that's nice. I'm sure you'll be hearing more of that in future episodes of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening, for spending these 26 minutes of your life with me. I hope you have a great day wherever it is you are in the world. Please head by expatmadrid.com. Drop your email into the little box there and receive updates. You could follow me on Facebook or on Instagram. I'm Daniel Welsh, W-E-L-S-C-H. You could donate some money to the cause. Hey, expatmadrid.com slash donate. Buy me a virtual coffee or a virtual vermouth, or you could buy me a hundred virtual coffees or virtual vermouths. My plan back in the day was to buy Torre Picasso in Madrid and rename it Torre Daniel, but that was when I was an ambitious 27-year-old. Now I think I'll just uh, settle for the coffee. Anyway, thanks again and have a great day. Keep on trucking. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.